know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Your host is Dr. Ted O'Connell, family physician, educator, and author of many well-known medical textbooks. He also founded the nation's first fellowship to formally combine community medicine and global health. Welcome to the podcast. This is Ted O'Connell, your host, and we're talking about COVID-19, the novel coronavirus. As we all know, this virus is affecting people worldwide and is now impacting our local communities here in the United States. It's leading to unprecedented cancellations in sporting events, travel, group gatherings, and education. Today, we have a couple of special guests who are actually two physicians who are a married couple. Dr. Amy Ostick is the owner and primary care physician at Health and Healing Direct Primary Care in Woodland Hills, California. Dr. Ostick received her undergraduate degree from the University of California, Berkeley, and earned her medical degree from the Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Ostick completed her family medicine residency training at Thomas Jefferson University, and then completed a community medicine fellowship at Kaiser Permanente Medical Center, Woodland Hills. She is board certified in family medicine and is a fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians. Dr. Ostick has practiced primary care for over 10 years and has experience in a variety of different clinical settings and in various healthcare systems. Her husband, Dr. Brian Ostick, is the Director of Emergency Services and Chief of Staff at Valley Presbyterian Hospital in Van Nuys, California. Dr. Ostick graduated with honors from the University of Notre Dame, Go Irish, and earned his medical degree from the Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dr. Ostick completed his residency training in emergency medicine at Christiana Healthcare System in Delaware, where he was chief resident and trauma resident of the year. Dr. Ostick is board certified in emergency medicine and has attained certification in advanced cardiac life support, pediatric advanced life support, and advanced trauma life support. He's a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians and has been published in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine and Current Sports Medicine Reports. Dr. Ostick has participated in medical outreach programs in Jamaica and Ecuadorian Amazon. So Amy and Brian, if it's all right, I'm going to call you by your first names to avoid confusion with Dr. and Dr. Ostick. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. Yeah, (laughs) of course. Thanks for having us. Today is March 15th, 2020, and this entire thing is evolving very, very rapidly, and our understanding of the entire viral process with COVID-19 is changing. And so we we say we think we don't know how long it it can last on on a hard surface. In a couple of weeks, we might know that, we might not, but... um, Basically, if you're within a certain amount of space from somebody that has the disease um, and they are coughing or spreading respiratory droplets, if that gets into your system, you could um, start with the symptoms of COVID-19 as well. And usually that distance is said to be about six feet from somebody else. So if somebody coughs on you from within six feet or less, the chances of you getting the disease is possible. But if you're a number of 
feet more than that away from somebody, the chances of you getting sick from that person is much less. There's also a chance that droplets could be on a, a, a hard surface or a, you know, a door handle or something like that. It's unclear at this point how long that lasts, but that's a possibility. But it seems like more of the spread has been person to person from people in close contact with each other, again, less than six feet. Thanks for that explanation. And that's where this idea of, of social distancing comes from. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, that seems to be the best chance of us trying to keep this disease at bay as best we can is to try to keep people away from each other. Because if we can all stay more than six feet from each other, that would keep this disease from spreading quickly. Um, you know, th- that's the reason why the NBA and a lot of other major sporting events or, or concerts have been canceled. Because if you put a large number of people within a few feet of each other in one place, the chances of it spreading uh, become much more rapid at that time. So if everybody stays home and can keep to themselves and avoid being in large crowds or groups, that can hopefully help keep the spread at a minimum. So we're here at the tail end of influenza season and also in this season where we see a lot of other respiratory viruses that go around that can make it really difficult to sort out what is flu, what is respiratory syncytial virus or what's called RSV some of the other viruses that we see this time of year and COVID-19. But maybe you could give us uh, what the symptoms of COVID-19 infection are as we understand them today. Sure. So, you know, from what we've seen, the COVID-19 symptoms seem to be a combination of fever, cough, runny nose, and shortness of breath. And that can be very similar to a lot of other viruses that we deal with this time of year. You're, you're right in terms of uh, influenza, other types of coronavirus that we already deal with uh, on a regular basis, rhinovirus, common cold type viruses. Um, so it can be difficult to differentiate. But the one thing that I think that makes this a little bit different is that a lot of these patients uh, that we're seeing that have COVID-19 have either had travel to China, uh, Iran, or Italy, or one of the countries that have been hit very hard with COVID-19 so far or have had close contact with somebody that has been diagnosed with the COVID-19 virus. Right, right. So with this starting to spread in our communities person to person, um, can you tell us some simple steps that individuals can do to keep themselves and their family members safe, or at least as safe as possible? Yeah, I mean, I think the social distancing is, is really key, and I think it's going to be very difficult, and it's hard to take a step in a, in, a, in a prevention, you know, preventive care is very difficult for people to kind of grab, grasp their uh, um, arms around in terms of they don't see the effect right away. You know, they're looking at preventative measures and they're looking at people and they're thinking everybody looks okay. These are preventative steps that we're taking so that we don't deal with catastrophic numbers of people flooding the emergency rooms and requiring mechanical ventilation all at once. So social distancing is really so that we can um, – Maintain kind of slow, flatten the curve, slow the velocity of spread of the virus at one point. So social distancing, keeping yourself isolated, at least from a physical sense, six feet away from people, really hand washing um, before and after you go out of the house and touching surfaces, um, avoiding touching your face at all costs, because that's kind of where you can introduce respiratory droplets or the virus into your uh, respiratory um, uh, system. And then if the biggest thing too, I think for a lot of my patients, I've been telling them is really just if you do have any symptoms of this, any sort of runny nose or cough um, or 
certainly fever and we don't know if it's COVID-19 or not just to stay home. I mean, it's still flu season and we don't want to be spreading flu to our vulnerable populations either. So home quarantine, if you have um, upper respiratory symptoms in general, um, is a good idea. So for sure around this time. Great. Thanks, Amy. That's super helpful advice. Amy, so tell me, um, what are you telling your patients about travel uh, with this emerging pandemic and particularly air travel, but just travel in general? Yeah, I mean, you know, my thoughts on this in general have have rapidly changed over the last week. Um, And I was really telling people who, um, you know, really restricting international travel a couple of weeks ago. And then now I'm really telling all of my patients um, to avoid air travel at all costs because it does confine you into a closed space and and close contact with people um, and potentially expose you to any sort of vulnerable, vulnerable populations that may be on the plane with you. So I'm telling them to avoid travel at all costs or in terms of air travel. Um, and I think, um, you know, travel in a, in a car, it, you know, it depends on what your motivation, where you're going. If you're going to see grandma and grandpa somewhere, that's probably not a good idea. Um, in general, what we're trying to do is, is keep the distance and phys- groups of um, groups of settings kind of to a minimum. So, you know, the biggest thing right now I see is, is around play dates with all of these kind of, um, people, kids stuck at home and, and, and parents are organizing play dates and they don't know how many kids is too many kids at my home. And it's, it's at this point, we've just got to be really extra cautious until we know more information and we've got to really limit as much as best we can. So no play dates, you know, no, no going to the mall, really any sort of, you know, group setting. Yes, our, our children are asking the same thing. They're off school now um, and asking to get together with their friends. And we're struggling with that same question. Right. We were actually just talking with some friends about this idea of travel, too. It, it's, it gets very tempting. You know, today's March 15th, as we said. So far, the government hasn't canceled air travel or restricted air travel. Flights are dirt cheap. It, you know, it gets right. really yeah. tempting to to jump on a plane and go somewhere. But I, I really do think it's just the best advice to advise people not to get on a plane unless they absolutely need to get somewhere. I was uh, supposed to fly to Jupiter, Florida for spring training this weekend coming up. And I had to cancel that flight. I mean, part of it was I'm the director of the emergency department and in a time of crisis, you need to be there as a leader. But secondly, I didn't want to fly and be on a plane at this point, And I didn't want to get stuck in Florida right. if, if, domestic travel was then canceled at some point. So uh, for those reasons, we are recommending that people stay at home, not travel at this time, even domestically. Well, I'm really glad you mentioned that and showing people that you're walking the talk and and really canceling your own travel as well. So Amy, uh, you work in a direct primary care business model and practice. Can you tell us a bit more about what that means and about your practice in general? Right. So direct primary care distinguishes itself um, from a typical primary care office in that in the way that we are paid in the payment model. So in a typical primary care office, they, they bill insurance for each visit type. So you see the patient, you code a bunch of codes, on average about a three-minute actual visit, six minutes of documentation. You send that bill over to insurance companies and you get reimbursed, reimbursed a percentage of that, of that uh, bill. And depending on the patient's insurance, they may or may not be on the hook for some of that bill. And what's happened with a lot of insurance types over the past few years is that premiums have shot way up, deductibles have shot way up. So patients have got stuck with these really high, um, expensive bills for, for their visits, and they're getting 
really it's led to people not seeking out primary care and preventative services because of the fear of payment. Um, so what direct primary care has done is that to address a lot of those issues, address the, the issue of a kind of um, overwhelmed primary care office, seeing 30 patients a day, spending on average of three to six minutes per patient. And then also the, the cost um, is works on a, on a monthly membership. So you pay a, a typical monthly membership is between $50 and $100, and it's a wraparound fee. So it includes all of your visits. It includes everything that I may do in the office, so procedures, um, if we give you a nebulizer treatment, if we do an EKG, I mean, all of that's a wraparound fee. Um, in my particular practice at Health and Healing is $89 for an adult, $39 for a kid, $199 for a family of four. And it ends up being really pretty affordable for patients. And my demographic ranges from people with no insurance all the way up to, you know, PPO insurance and, you know, because they just like the kind of extra care because I have that model. It enables me also to have a lower number of total number of patients. So I spend a lot more time with patients. I'm more accessible. They all have my cell phone. It's kind of a little bit of a throwback to the 1950s and people really having a trusting relationship with their doctor again. So I know you understand that because your father was a physician and I can see a lot of sort of similarities in how my grandfather practiced where people really trusted him and, and, and looked at, to him for guidance and they all called him and they all knew that they could, um, they had a really good relationship with their primary care doctor. And that's kind of how I feel direct primary care is trying to fill that void again. Well, yeah, that's a great summary of, of what direct primary care is all about. I will tell our listeners, you've got a great social media presence and we'll make sure we link to that in the show notes so that I, I, do, I really think there's a lot that everybody can learn from you about healthcare in general and primary care and very definitely um, COVID. So we'll make sure that they have cool. links to your, your website and, and social media presence. You mentioned in that answer about accessibility. And so I actually want to ask you a bit about the idea of virtual medicine or telemedicine, how you incorporate that into your practice in general, and even more importantly, now that we're really trying to do more, more virtually and, and avoid that person-to-person -person contact, uh, what that looks like in your practice. Right. And I think that, you know, if we could look at it from a half class full, you know, this COVID-19 is I hope at the end of this, that this will force us to look at primary care and healthcare delivery systems in general and why we are forcing this brick and mortar system when we're in the 21st century and that we need we need to kind of rethink about how our, our healthcare delivery system is 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 being serviced and what direct primary care is because we can just charge a, a flat fee we can really take that office visit and make it however we want it could be a face-to-face -face if it needs to be but it also can be a text a facetime an email, all of that is the same, you know, you're, it's all wrapped in that monthly fee. So what I love about it is it gives me, it gives patients a lot of flexibility not to take off three hours from their work day, um, loss of wages, taking a half day of sick time or whatever. Um, and wait in this busy waiting room, they can just text me to triage first to see if they even need to come in. And then we can really fit the visit type depending on what is needed. Um, so it's a much more efficient system um, I, I do it a lot for mental health, especially. I mean, I do it a lot for dermatological issues, as you can imagine. That's a very nice way to do virtual medicine. Um, and, you know, even complexity, disease complexity can be um, served that way, too, just to have more touches. You know, you don't have to spread out your hypertensive to six months because of access issues. You can really kind of touch base with them. 
every few weeks or every few months to make sure their lifestyle changes are being, you know, they're engaging in those lifestyle changes that you guys talked about. So um, I think, yeah, I think that we DPC is really trying to uh, flex the virtual medicine, telemedicine muscle a lot. That's great. You know, and whether we call it virtual medicine or telemedicine or telehealth, it really does seem to be the wave of the future for uh, making healthcare more accessible, more efficient, more cost effective. And I think this whole COVID-19 thing is really pushing medicine down the road a little bit further with regard to that. Mm -hmm. So it's great to hear that how, how you're incorporating that. So we're we're seeing a lot of people wearing face masks out on the streets and wearing them when they go out to stores or wherever they're going. And at the same time, we're approaching the potential of a critical shortage of face masks and other protective equipment in our hospitals for our healthcare providers who really need it for, to, to be able to care for patients. So what would your advice be for our listeners about this? Science, science, science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes. Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're healthy and well, you do not need a face mask. And there's uh, there's been actually no evidence to support that that reduces your risk of an infection. Um, it can reduce your risk of kind of touching your face, and that's the only thing that it's been shown to do. So if you're if you're well, yeah, you do not need to wear a face mask, um, and and certainly not an N95 mask. I mean, because those are in, in dire short supply, and a lot of DPC docs and docs that aren't connected to big healthcare systems are. Are, are desperately in need of that because they want to start swabbing, they want to start testing, and they can't do that without the proper PPE or um, personal protective equipment and N95 masks. So I I definitely do not support using N95 in healthy well people. If you are sick, um, then yes. And, you, and if you do have to leave the house, if you have just a basic surgical mask, um, that's okay. And I think that's probably a smart thing to do. Um, but I, I would... I would very much uh, um, advise, you know, against the, the the stealing of any sort of surgical masks in ERs or in primary care offices, um, because our nurses need them for sure, and our definitely our docs and the front lines that need them. So, yeah, and you say stealing, you know, unfortunately that is happening. And so, just mm -hmm. as a public service announcement, really, if you're healthy and you're out and about. You don't need to be wearing masks and please don't take them from hospitals, medical centers, offices. They really are needed to care for sick patients and, and keep our right. healthcare workforce healthy so that they can provide care for the sickest of the sick. Right. Um, just today, the governor of California ordered bars and wineries to close to the public and asked that restaurants cut capacity to 50%. New York City has closed its public schools. Other states are implementing measures very similar to, to what's going on in New York and California. 
What are your thoughts in general about these actions that are being taken? You know, so these are tough decisions that the public officials are having to make, but uh, it would be our understanding that this is the best thing at this point for this outbreak. Um, it's tough as a, you know, you look at a bar or a pub as a social gathering place. And as a, you know, fellow Irishman, it's it's tough when you say you got to close the pubs. But when we're talking about social distancing, um, the last thing you want to do is put a bunch of people in one place together. And, and that's what a what a bar or a pub is, is set up to do. So by by shutting those down and, and forcing people to to stay away from each other, that will help to slow the spread of this disease as best as possible. You know, Amy had mentioned flattening the curve a little bit earlier, and it's probably easier to see this, but most people have probably seen it on on social media of that the the two graphs, the one that ramps up really quickly and has a real steep curve, and the other one that is a lot flatter, which is the flattening the curve type graph. And you know, the problem with the first one that's really steep would be if everybody got infected very quickly, and if everybody showed up in my emergency department tomorrow, uh, we would we would have a tough time handling all those patients. It would be better if somebody got sick tomorrow and then somebody else got sick in a week and somebody else got sick a week after that and we were able to handle those cases over an extended period of time as opposed to handling them all within the first week. And so by keeping people away from each other and social distancing and allowing us to flatten the curve, that gives us the best chance of success overall as a country. Yes. And I think what happened in Northern Italy and what's starting to happen in Spain is a really good lesson in that is that, you know, we just, the healthcare system is not set up to deal with everybody being sick all at once, especially with critical illnesses. Yeah. So Brian, can you tell us why it's so important to keep our emergency departments from becoming overcrowded? Yeah, so to give you an idea, uh, we see about 70,000 patients a year in our emergency department. And that translates at this time of year to about 220 to 240 patients per day. And that was before this outbreak even started. So, you know, we take care of heart attack patients and stroke patients um, and, and some minor trauma type patients as well as regular run-of-the-mill patients that come and go throughout the day. And so, um, you know, those things are going to continue to happen as this COVID outbreak starts and goes on. And so the problem is um, that that we're going to add this pandemic outbreak on top of all the regular emergencies that we dealt with before. So if we have patients that are coming um, uh, in, in, in boatloads, uh, that are sick or, or maybe that are not even that sick, that just are just showing up because they're worried, um, that can really overwhelm our resources fairly quickly. We have a limited number of doctors, nurse practitioners, and PAs, as well as our nursing staff and ancillary services that are there. And they're really working hard trying to keep up with all this. But if we're, um, you know, if, if, if people are showing up in, 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 in big numbers, it, it could, it could overwhelm our system pretty quickly. Right. And then if you have people in the waiting rooms in close proximity who are sick, you even run the risk of exposing yourself to to COVID-19 and other illnesses while you're waiting in the emergent in, in the triage room or waiting room, right? Yep, that's correct. Now, in the last five days, we've had a, a decrease in the number of patients that we've seen. And I think the word is getting out that if you're not that sick, you know, please stay at home and, and, and do the social distancing, stay at home. Um, do your own self-quarantine if, if that's what your doctor has recommended. 
um, and, and really only come and use the emergency department if you're really sick or having severe shortness of breath or can't keep any fluids down. Those would be the reasons that we would want to see in the emergency department. But otherwise, if you just have mild illness, it's probably best to speak to your primary care doctor and deal with it at home. We should write that down and put it on a T-shirt. It's a great public (laughs) service message. Um, So how are you preparing in the emergency department and the hospital for a potential uptick in COVID-19 cases where people truly do get sick and start to um, really need care in our emergency departments and hospitals? Yeah, so the biggest concern that I have right now is protection of my doctors, my staff, and our ancillary services. So the PPE, the personal protective equipment, uh, using it the right way, having enough of it so that we can use it on the appropriate patients is really important. Um, I don't want my staff getting sick because if I have a doctor that goes out because they got sick and now they need to be quarantined, that's going to make the next few shifts very difficult if they're scheduled to work. Um, So keeping them safe is kind of the most important thing. In in that respect, we understand that we, we may still have some people get sick even with the fact that they're using the PPE equipment appropriately. And so we've put together a backup call schedule. And it's been amazing to see my doctor step up and to say, even though I'm not working this day, I'm willing to be the backup doc for that day in case somebody gets sick and I'll step up and do their shift. We're also uh, employing a almost like an emergency disaster response team um, with a list of doctors that don't even work in my emergency department currently that are willing to do shifts at various emergency departments that we could get credentialed very quickly in the case of uh, a disaster where we would need extra doctors to come on board and work shifts. And so we've put that together as well. And, and these people are really the true heroes that are putting themselves and their families at risk by being on the front lines of the emergency department and stepping up in this time of need. And so we really appreciate that. Um, we're talking about, you know, from a hospital-wide Uh, standpoint, uh, talking about cancellation of elective surgery cases uh, so that there's enough uh, availability of of beds in the hospital as well as ICU beds. And then we're also talking about increasing the number of ventilators that we have available in the hospital because as these cases get more severe, you start to see people that have trouble with oxygenation and their oxygen level drops and they need to be put on ventilators and we need to help them breathe for a period of days as they as they rest their lungs until they get better and we can take them off the ventilator. So you see this happening in Italy right now where they've had a need for increased number of ventilators. And so our respiratory team, as well as our hospital, are looking at increasing the number of ventilators so that we're ready in case that surge does happen. I'm really curious to hear, Brian, about this emergency response team that you're putting together. Uh, how do you put the call out for physicians to sign up for that? How do you identify who might be interested. It's an interesting, um, you know, kind of operational challenge, I imagine. Yeah. So my group, uh, we, we have about 30 emergency departments around the LA and San Diego area, as well as New Mexico and Hawaii. And they've put out a kind of a message to all the docs to say, Hey, if you're willing to be part of this team, please let us know. And we have a list now of the docs that are willing to, uh, to lend out their services and to provide their, their extra time and extra shifts in case that's needed. It may not come to that, but at least we have that as a backup uh, in case it does. Does that include nursing staff and laboratory technicians and radiology technicians and other ancillary healthcare workers, or is it specific to uh, physician workforce? For us, it's just it's just the physician workforce at this point. But you know, every day we're meeting with the hospital leadership 
and we're kind of sharing best practices and talking about the updates uh, as to what happened throughout the day. Where are we now and what do we need to do to plan for tomorrow? And so the idea is let's 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 hit each day as it happens. We'll get through that day and we'll look to the next day as to what we need. What resources do we need? What things do we need to change? What worked? What didn't work? And, and where do we go from here? So, you know, in, in collaboration with all those different services, it, t- it takes a real a real team approach to get through a, a crisis like this. So it takes the doctors and the MPs and the PAs and the, the nursing staff and you need security and you need respiratory and you need the leadership of the hospital. You need the environmental services, the people to clean rooms and make sure that they're clean for the next patient to come in. So everybody working together is important. I mean, don't even forget the, the cafeteria workers that are there to help feed the patients as well as the, the staff uh, so that we can continue to do our job. Uh, everybody has a role to play and everybody has to play that role so that we can succeed. Yes, I think it really demonstrates the importance of interprofessional teamwork and our ability to be agile and, and make changes on the fly as, as new information comes in and new challenges comes up. So it's uh, really an interesting, we could probably do a whole podcast just on, on how, yeah. from a public health standpoint, how all of that is being approached. Um, Absolutely. Before, before we kind of start to wrap up here, um, can you also either of you tell, just tell us how um, hospitals with which you're associated are addressing visitors and trying to keep visitors to a minimum. I know ours is instituted. Anybody under the age of 14 really shouldn't be in the medical in, in the hospital portion of our medical center to try to avoid um, other people getting infected. But what, what's going on where you are? Yeah, so we've changed things over the past week uh, a couple of different times. Now, uh, a week ago, we instituted a process where before you even get to the emergency department, there's a screening done by security that asks those questions. Do you have fever? Do you have upper respiratory infections? Have you traveled to any of these countries that are currently dealing with the COVID uh, outbreak? And if you answered yes to any of those things, even if you weren't a patient, you were just a visitor coming to see a patient that was in the hospital, you were then taken and and identified as a potential person of interest and that we had to, to kind of go through the, 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 the process to see if you truly could have that infection and if you needed to be tested or if you needed to be sent home in quarantine. So that was something that just started a week ago. We've gotten a little bit more, um, uh, we've ramped up the security a bit to say that we're limiting the number of visitors that a, that a patient can have. We're limiting the number of visiting hours. We're trying to end visiting hours earlier to give patients a chance to rest and to sleep upstairs. And we have also done the same thing with trying to say we don't really want uh, uh, the, the pediatric population coming in as visitors. And we were encouraging families to keep the pediatric population home. Um, we're also making sure that uh, everybody's wearing their badge and that they're identified as healthcare professionals uh, so that we can make sure that the doctors can get in and out of the hospital and see their patients, but that patient, the, the people that aren't part of the healthcare team um, are, are not are not let in. And you know, we want to make sure that the public knows that we're not trying to keep you away from your loved ones, but this is some of the, the measures that are, that are important when you're dealing with a, a healthcare crisis. Yeah, sometimes it's just important and necessary to instruct, enforce really strict infection care measures, which is, sounds like is what's happening. We're doing things to even as simple as uh, we, we, you know, we have a big salad buffet, uh, a salad bar in the cafeteria, and they've done away with that to try to avoid any sort of spread of disease that way. So they've done all prepackaged salads and sandwiches. Uh, which is different from the way they used to provide food at our cafeteria. And, and that's done to try to avoid the spread of this disease. Right. It's all a new normal, is, uh, at least until this gets under control. 
Well, this yeah. has been super useful information. And I think our listeners are really going to appreciate the insights that the two of you have had. Is there anything that I haven't asked that you'd like to, to add to this podcast? I would just say, you know, um, getting back to the telemedicine, I think, especially for this type in this type of situation where we are right now, I mean, your first call should be to a telemedicine service or a doctor or a, a professional before you ever, before you really think about going to an ER, even an urgent care setting, um, before you go into a healthcare facility, try to triage yourself either with uh, your primary care doctor or, or using a telemedicine service. Um, that's what we're trying to, that will really help in slow in flattening the curve and, and, and exposing um, healthcare workers probably unnecessarily. And, um, and also, exposing the vulnerable population, people in the hospital. So, yeah. I would echo that, you know, we're trying to avoid panic here in, in this time. It's, it's serious and we are in a state of emergency and we do want people to stay at home, um, but to avoid panic. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that we're, we're doing the right thing. We're doing the right thing by preparing the emergency department. We're preparing the hospital in the case of worst case scenario. And we're hoping it doesn't get there. Um, but by staying at home, by being with your loved ones, making sure that you, you know, hug your, hug your wife, hug your kids a little bit tighter, um, and make sure you're taking the appropriate precautions. I think we're going to get through this. And then I'm hoping within a few months, uh, this will have died down and we'll be back to our, our, our usual state, but that's our hope. Yeah. That's a great, I think, way to wrap up this, this interview here. Uh, Amy, Brian, I want to, Dr. Ostick, Dr. Ostick, uh, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your very busy professional and personal lives to come on this podcast and do this as a public service so that people just have more information about this evolving healthcare crisis. And, and hopefully by understanding what's going on a little bit better, everybody can sleep a little bit easier, just having you know that sense of knowledge often drives calm. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Doc. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslonga.media. Be vigilant, but remain calm. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice.